This episode of the Ready Room is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. And also by TrekFan. TrekFan isn't just a Star Trek fan club; it's a challenge. You will explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. And in the spirit of an enlightened future, TrekFan is absolutely free—not just free to play, but completely free. Find out more by visiting fm.trekfan.org. I'm Jeff Combs. I'm everywhere on Star Trek, and you keep tuning in to Trek FM. Welcome to the Ready Room, show number one hundred forty-four. Livingston, you will be assimilated. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week is Charlene Schmidt. We'll be talking about some Star Trek news, including William Shatner at the Calgary Stampede, more Shatner as he and Kate Mulgrew jab each other in Chicago, and what happens on a starship bridge when you stabilize it. Then in the feature, we're joined by Daniel Prue and Tyler Johnson to discuss the TNG episode "I Borg." So let's step into the ready room. Hello, Shar. I, I have to ask, I thought this was TNG week, but you're here. Are we doing a Voyager episode today? Uh, maybe in a really weird, inadvertent way, yes. Oh, true. But maybe I'm just in the TNG spirit of things. I'm wearing my visor. You are wearing your visor. It's a lot more stylish than Jordy's visor, though. I don't know about that. I actually really am... It's been 10 days. I'm not used to these glasses. Still, I cannot wait to dump them tomorrow. Right. You're getting your ocular implants tomorrow, right? That's right. Yes, I am. With like 4X Zoom and all sorts of awesome capabilities. I can't wait. I can't wait to those scenes when we're recording podcasts where we zoom in on you and we can actually see the gears spinning in your eyes. That's right. Yeah. And then you'll see the infrared point of view. Oh, yeah. It's going to be fantastic. (laughs) Now, seriously, you're having LASIK surgery tomorrow, right? The 21st century equivalent, yes. Okay. (laughs) Yes, I am. And so you have to wear glasses for 10 days before you get the surgery done. Otherwise, I'd be very happily wearing my contacts. But no, uh, ends justify the means. Well, let's jump into the news because the first story that we have today is a place that you're not going to want to go right after having LASIK surgery because it's very, very dusty. Mm. And that's a rodeo, so stampede is the Calgary stampede. But you would probably be very, very tempted to go because William Shatner is going to be there as the Grand Marshal. Well, that is tempting, but I have already been warned that I will need eye drops the first few days after LASIK. And so, yeah, a big dusty rodeo is probably not what I should be doing. But, you know, this isn't happening for a little while. Maybe I've got a chance. This isn't going to happen until July 4th, and then it's going to run through the 13th. So I've got just a little under a month here. That's plenty of recovery time. Actually, I think it probably is. Yeah. Now, is is the Calgary Stampede, is this the kind of event that you would 
go to. I know that you are originally from the great Northwest, but West, not Northwest like Seattle, but from Wyoming. Wyoming, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, this is hilarious. No, I hate rodeos. There is no way you will ever catch me at one, even if William Shatner is going to be there. I'm totally talking out of my ass. (laughs) I would not go to a rodeo. You know, I think that's a great concept for an alien on Star Trek. Talking out of your ass? Yeah, that's what they do. They should have you done think that on the got animated their back series. To you and they're actually just trying to communicate. Well, they did do it on South Park. Check out that episode. <laughs> so this event, everyone knows, of course, that William Shatner is Canadian. And everyone knows that William Shatner loves horses. And it makes perfect sense that he would be at an event like this and... Bob Thompson, who's the president and the chairman of the board of Calgary Stampede, has tapped William Shatner to come be the Grand Marshal at this year's event. Interestingly, Shatner says he's never been to the Calgary Stampede before. Hmm. Well, just because you're a Canadian doesn't mean you've been to all of Canada. Right. But he has been to Calgary, though. He says he's been to Calgary. Oh. And because he loves horses so much, it just seemed like the kind of event that maybe... Over the course of 83 years, he would have been there at some point. True, but Shatner doesn't strike me as the type to use his horses in rodeo. No, no, but I'm sure there's other stuff going on there besides just that. (laughs) What I don't know will be happening, though, is if he might run into Patrick Stewart there and they might ride off together into the Nexus. (laughs) Well, you know that's going to happen, right? (laughs) It could. Yeah. So this event is going to be taking place, as you said, July 4th through the 13th. And the I mentioned Bob Thompson already, the president. He said Shatner's Hollywood credentials are just part of the reason we thought he would be a great choice as our 2014 parade marshal. He has an unparalleled passion for horses, which we thought would be a great fit for us. I can't wait to kick off the Calgary Stampede with him in the year of the horse. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, okay. You know, I'm not very much into this sort of thing at the Western lifestyle. Maybe living in Wyoming kind of turned me off to the whole thing, but it sounds like there's also some nice good things here because I think the whole idea of the organization itself and the event is to kind of just like promote good. Remember Western, you know, the Western way of life, but then also volunteerism and just kind of, I don't know, those good old-fashioned heritage values of the West. Yeah, that's what they promote, yeah. And and I think, you know, when I read the story and just listening to you talk here, as many listeners may be thinking as well, the fact that when we talk about them supporting Western values and Western way of life shows why they need to help maintain this so that it's not completely lost because the first thing that comes to mind when we say western values western way of life is america and europe right as opposed to (laughs) other parts of the world and that's not what we're talking about no we're talking about the old west whether it's the u.s or canada but just the whole the open plains the the great frontier the lifestyle that evolved over time out there, which is something that we we are losing these days. It is because farming and I just think agriculture in general has been so subsidized by big companies. The whole idea of a family farm is almost a rarity 
anymore. It's certainly shrunk, if nothing else. And so this whole mentality of we're going to take care of ourselves and take care of each other. We're going to work hard. We're going to play hard. And just being a good person. Golden rule, I think, is a important Western value. It should just be a human value. But in the yeah. Western sense, it means you respect other people as long as they respect you. Right. So this is a. it's great to see William Shatner lending his voice and his persona to this. I think it will help attract even more attention to the event this year. And it'll be great to see him. I say it'll be great. It's not like I'm going to be able to go. <laughs> Although if I were near Calgary, I actually would go to see William Shatner there because I think it would be great to see him in this different environment where he's with horses and he's not the you know, Captain Kirk or the person at conventions that we're used to seeing all the time. But it's a different side of Shatner. That's very true, indeed. So if you want to know more about this event, you can go to calgarystampede.com and learn all about Calgary Stampede and the Calgary Stampede Parade, which is what Shatner will be Grand Marshal of there, when the event kicks off on July 4th. Now, Shar, before we move on to our next news story, we would like to welcome back a sponsor to The Ready Room. This is someone who longtime listeners of the show will know, and that's Trek Fan. We're very happy to have Trek Fan back with us as a sponsor. And Trek Fan is a Star Trek fan club, but it's different than your usual fan club because it's really built around the idea of challenges and thinking outside of the box and really bringing people's love of Star Trek together and channeling it into helping us build a better future. And one new thing that they've launched is called Starfleet Academy. And here's how it works. When you join Trek Fan, there will be a box that you can click and it says, I would like to join Starfleet Academy. What happens next, and this is how the challenges work, and, and one thing that makes Trek Fan so interesting they will send you a random Star Trek novel. You will read the novel, and then you'll fill out a form, letting them know what you thought about it. Then they will send you another random Star Trek novel. They have thousands of them, and they want to get those into your hands so that you can enjoy them absolutely free. And that's the great thing. It doesn't cost anything for you to sign up to join the club. And they're going to send you Star Trek books, and you can read them and let them know what you think about them. However... They're not a library, so do not send the books back. You get to keep them, and you can pass them on to your friends. You can help spread Star Trek in that way, and all they want you to do when you pass them on to friends is to tell your friends about Trek Fan, and then what they ask from you after that is a review of the book, and they're going to put the reviews into an anthology, add it to their records, so that others can make informed decisions about which Star Trek books they'd like to read next. Really cool concept, right, Sharp? This is the best Star Trek book club ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> this really is, is a great idea. I love it. It's really, really cool. And it's a great way for you to get into Star Trek books, too. If you've been thinking about reading them, but you, you, know, you don't want to buy one, you're not sure. Yeah. Great way to get into that as well. And if you're not a member of Trek fan yet... It's easy to make this happen right now for you. All you need to do is go to TrekFan and sign up. And what I would ask you to do, please, is to let TrekFan know that you're joining the club as a result of hearing about it here on The Ready Room. 
And to do that, there is a special URL that we need you to go to. And this URL is fm.trekfan.org. Fm trekfan.org. Please do use that URL. That will get you right there into the site, and it will also let them know that you heard about it here on the Ready Room. So go check it out. Wonderful concept here. Great fan club. Great organization. And we really thank TrekFan for their support of the show and the network. All right, Char, let's move on to our next news story. This one is about the Creation Entertainment Convention that just took place in Chicago. Apparently, your favorite captain was there. Of course she was, yes. And she was also with somebody we mentioned not that long ago, William Shatner. They were Who? in Chicago. <laughs> William Who? Shatner? We cowboy William him. Shatner. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. I know what you're talking about. I saw him with the white cowboy hat on in the Photoshop artwork I did oh, last night. So right. Yes, yes, yes. I yes. know who you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> that guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he and Kate Mulgrew were both in Chicago for a panel on Saturday, and apparently the convention was going on all weekend long. Um, we're recording this on Sunday, June 8th. It started Friday, earlier in the week, ended today. And uh, I was entertained this weekend by these two. Our very own Mike Schindler, who hosts Standard Orbit with Drew and then Commentary Trek Stars with Max, he was tweeting quotes from his account. And I was just kind of laughing as I kept scrolling through my feed. I got to read some of these because they were really good. So here's one thing that Mulgrew said to Shatner. I sensed your virility instantly. It's both attractive and repugnant. I can totally imagine her saying this. and Oh, I, I can not... see her facial expression and everything and the way she would <laughs> tilt back a little bit as she's looking at Shatner, yes. Yes, yes. And granted, I don't know the full context for these because I was not at the convention myself, but even so, this is hilarious. But this one's even better. She said to him, I would give everything I own to watch you give birth to a child. <laughs> That's a strange statement. <laughs> I want to know why this came out of her mouth. But yes. you know what? I would love to see any man in agony giving birth. Wow. Really? Yes. Just so It's a good know. thing you don't write Star Trek episodes because I can just see the scene yeah. taking place. Yeah, Unexpected on Enterprise would have gone very differently. <laughs> <laughs> you would have had more than wrist nipple. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, these two had a really interesting banter going on. There was some fun stuff happening, apparently, on this stage. Uh, Shatner, not to be outdone, ever, he criticized oh, Mulgrew no. for her Russian accent, saying that he, she sounds nothing like Chekhov on Orange is the New Black, which, of course, <laughs> second season just got released on Friday, so this is very relevant. And I'm sorry, Shatner, Shatner I totally disagree. Well, she probably sounds more Russian than Chekhov did, since Chekhov's Russian <laughs> accent is actually not very yeah, authentically Russian. So. It was sort of like his wig in the earlier episodes. It's it was authentically monkeys. <laughs> it was. It was very Davy Jones. Maybe that was the accent yeah. as well. <laughs> Maybe so. You know, what that reminds me of is in the Captain's documentary where... Kate Mulgrew is looking for Shatner and she finds him in that cardboard box out on the sidewalk and then mm -hmm. the banter that they have there and then afterwards. That's what these quotes remind me of. Yeah, I think they've developed a very interesting friendship over the years. You can tell that they have a lot of fun with one another. And I got to see them on stage last year at Star Trek Las Vegas. I recommend if you can see either one of these two, but especially them both together, do it. It is so worth the price. 
And if I recall correctly, they are going to be at conventions together uh, in the near future, right? I believe so. I'm I'm pretty sure they're going to be at Star Trek Las Vegas. Yep. And I believe they're going to both be at Destination Star Trek London coming mm-hmm. up in, I believe it's October as well. So yeah, they, they seem to be everywhere together these days. <laughs> well, kind of. Uh, Mulgrew is very busy promoting Orange is the New Black, so she is everywhere like Jeffrey Combs these days. He is everywhere. But she will get together with Shatner here and there. Well, other guests at the Chicago convention included Jerry Ryan, Robert Beltran, Nichelle Nichols, Anthony Montgomery, and many others. Char, as a Voyager person yourself, don't you find it interesting that Robert Beltran is suddenly turning up at all these conventions? Well, you know, he was there the same day as Jerry Ryan, and she later tweeted a pic today with herself and Robert, so he had good incentive to make an appearance in Chicago. I think that was incentive for a lot of people who were there at that convention. To, to see Chakotay 7 or just Jerry Ryan? Jerry Ryan. Yeah, okay. Because that's the only kind of Chakotay 7 interaction I can handle. <laughs> but it's great to see him out there now because, you know, some actors are more active on the convention circuit than others, but we want to mm-hmm. hear from all of them. So it's good to see him there, just like it's been good to see Terry Farrell turning yes. up recently as well, so we can hear about Jadzia Dax. Absolutely. Well, more conventions coming up down the road. Of course, Star Trek Las Vegas kicks off July 31st, and then Destination Star Trek London, which of course is not a creation entertainment event. It's done by Media 10, but that will be kicking off there on the other side of the pond, as they say. Although <laughs> I'm on the other side of the really, really big pond. That's true. You guys have that little little bitty pond over there. Right. You got to get Larry to say that. The other side of the really big pond. I think he said it before, maybe not on the air. Yeah, I'll have to make sure mm. I'm recording. You'll have some to get of these that. Things. All right. Well, we have one more story here in news today. This is Star Trek Stabilized. Now, my Twitter stream has just been filled with tweets from different publications and different individuals about this story for the past week. And I have not talked about it on Hyper Channel. You dropped it into the outline today. Tell me what you think about this. Well, I, for one, love it. Because anytime somebody finds a creative way to use the Star Trek footage that we have seen for years and years in a new and exciting and sometimes downright hilarious way, hey, I am all for it. Yeah, it's cool in that sense. I have felt oversaturated by this story over the past week, probably because I I do have a column where I just keep an eye on hashtag Star Trek. And, but what has bugged me about this story isn't what they've actually done here. It's the way it's been presented by the media and so many people. Oh, really? Most of the headlines that I have seen have been watch Star Trek actors act like idiots when the special effects are off ah. or, or see how ridiculous Star Trek is when the stabilizers are on or it's just most of the headlines I've seen have been very negative in their phrasing and have portrayed Star Trek as being dumb and have portrayed the actors as being silly, Hmm. which I find really strange because they're making a TV show. Yeah. It's called acting. No matter what, 
TV show or what movie it is. It's not like Star Trek is the only place where people do this on camera. So I just found it, I found it kind of odd uh, the way it was presented. It kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. Huh. I'm glad I didn't see all those headlines like you did. Maybe because I don't follow the hashtag Star Trek. Yeah. Um, not on a regular basis anyway. But uh, yeah, that's too bad because it's not stupid at all. It's not the actors making fools of themselves. It's called acting. No, it's hard to do, actually. I mean, think yeah. if you were there and you were on that stage and you were having to perform that and you're having to imagine that you're being shaken and the bridge isn't on a gimbal or something, it's not easy to do. No, absolutely not. And so I think, I don't know, the media is what it is. Let's just appreciate it for what it is. And it's entertainment. Well, tell us about the video itself. So what's going on here? Okay. Well, of course, this whole thing started on Reddit because all the big trends do, right? You know, Reddit users, uh, I don't know exactly how they've been doing this, but they found a way to stabilize the image so that you can just see how it looks without the camera shake. Uh And so you see just what the actors did to simulate, say, the ship being hit or what have you. And so, you know, it's kind of funny. You see Nichelle Nichols throwing herself against the turbo lift door or William Shatner. He throws himself back. He's like right in the camera and then, you know, throws himself over to the helmsman station. And it's it is goofy, but it's also a lot of fun. But that's not just it. They've already gone to the effort of compiling this into a music video clip. Um, So you can see a lot of these videos compiled into one YouTube video, and it's set to the music of Turn Down for What by Little John. And it's awesome! (laughs) (laughs) It is cool. I I love these. I do love these kind of video projects that people do with Star Trek. So that's very cool. Yeah, this is the power of the internet. We would not have this kind of stuff without it. So if you want to watch the video yourself, we'll put a link in the show notes over to an article on Slate, and you can get their take on it. They've got the video embedded right there as well. They do have one of the headlines, which is along the lines of what I was talking about, where they say, stabilizing a few camera shots makes the Star Trek crew look utterly ridiculous. So dramatic. You know, I mean, I guess it does look kind of ridiculous. I mean, I don't sit around my house and do this. And if I did, my neighbors would probably start talking. So It's earthquake preparation. (laughs) That's That's all. All right. Well, that's all we have in news today. Before we jump into the feature where we're going to be joined by Daniel Prue and Tyler Johnson to talk about iBorg, we'd like to tell you about our other sponsor for today's show, audible.com. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks online. They have over 150,000 titles for you to choose from right now. They actually are housing several hundred of those titles on my computer because I've been getting audiobooks from them for 14 years. So I have quite a big collection set up right here. I listen to it all the time. They have classics. They have current bestsellers. They have lots of Star Trek books as well. Lots of great things for you to listen to. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook just for trying Audible. And every week, we like to recommend a book to you. Shar, since you're on with me today, I thought it would be great if you tell everyone about Jerry Taylor's book, Mosaic, which is sort of semi-canon for Voyager. It pretty much is, because she wrote details from that book into episodes, and therefore, that stuff is canon. Yes, indeed. Uh, Yeah, Mosaic. It is the book on Janeway, 
Jerry Taylor created this character. She wrote all about it in this book. And if you want to hear the audio version, Kate Mulgrew narrates it. So it doesn't get any better than that. Does she do it with her Russian accent, like red? <laughs> I'm afraid not. This was recorded long before Orange is the New Black. <laughs> although, you know, maybe someday she'll redo it. And that would be fantastic, hearing Janeway in red voice. It would be, yeah. Someone should do that. That's a YouTube project right there, right? It Go through is. redub Voyager episodes with Janeway speaking like <laughs> red. I have seen photos, but we do need audio. Photos are easy. I mean, you can do a photo in just a couple of minutes with Photoshop. It's I want to see that. I, I need audio. Yeah, you need somebody with a really good Russian accent. Sounds like Kate Mulgrew. And I want to hear her giving orders on the bridge. That would be awesome. It would. So Mosaic, yes, great book. I read it in hardcover when it came out. If you want to know more about Janeway, definitely pick up this book. It's about her past from her childhood to Starfleet Academy, from her first love to her first command, and the challenges and conflicts that she faced along the way to become captain of the Starship Voyager. So it's it's a great fleshing out of the character by the woman who created the character, Jerry Taylor. And as I mentioned, you can get this absolutely free as a Trek FM listener. All you need to do is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up and try out Audible. If at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose. You get to keep Mosaic. That's yours. But you're going to love Audible. I know you're going to want to stick with them. And by just trying out Audible, you're really helping us here at the Ready Room because the money we get from Audible when you just try them out for a month almost covers the hosting costs of the Ready Room for one month. So if just one of you tries out Audible, it really does help us greatly. And we hope that you'll all go try it out because even if you weren't helping out the show by doing it, You're going to be getting a wonderful service that I absolutely love. You're going to be getting great selection every month, great prices, and great Star Trek books and other genres as well. And you can really read all those books that you really never thought you'd have time to read. Because if you're like me, it's hard to sit down and read a book. Although I do it, but I can't read all the ones I want. I do listen to many, many books as I'm working. So try it out audibletrial.com slash trekfm and we really thank Audible for their support of the Ready Room and the network. When you think about how long-lived Star Trek is, it's incredible to think that the storytelling moment that has been nearly impossible to top came 24 years ago. The Best of Both Worlds was so big, so bold, and so impactful that the writers shied away from returning to the story's villain, the Borg, because, well, where do you go from there? Two seasons later, they finally hit on an approach that could bring back the Borg in a unique way that did not require trying to top the famous cliffhanger. During a writer's retreat in 1991, the concept that became I, Borg, was born, and for such a quiet story, it had lasting repercussions on the future of Star Trek. Today, we're going to discuss this episode, and to help us do that, we're joined by one of the co-hosts of our TNG show, Earl Grey. Here, sipping a cup of Earl Grey with us today is Daniel Prue. Daniel, welcome back. We have to say thank you for for having us back. (laughs) We, we are, Daniel. 
That's right. We are. And we are Earl Grey. You're representing the Earl Grey Collective today. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for also having Also joining us once again for the first time in quite a while is Tyler Johnson. Tyler, I'm glad to have you back on the show. Yeah, I missed you guys. This is great. Always fun. Hopefully things are calming down for you. I know you've been extremely busy, so you haven't been around the network. But now that we have you here, we're going to lock you in a room. We're going to give <laughs> you a portal so you can get your nutrients. And we're going to give you a name. Perfect. Just as long as it's not you. <laughs> You? <laughs> Hugh. Hugh. <laughs> Strange name for a Borg, right? Yeah. It wasn't very creative. Yeah. Well, before we jump into the discussion, here's a quick synopsis, and this will be a quick synopsis this time for this episode. If for some reason you're a Star Trek fan and you've never seen I, Borg, the Enterprise detects a crashed Borg cube, like a scout ship, so a little cube, a mini cube on a planet, and they go down and they find one survivor. They bring him back up to the ship because Beverly wants to patch him up. Picard decides, okay, I guess I'll let him come on board. And then everyone falls in love with him, and they name him Hugh. And Picard is going to use him as a weapon to destroy the Collective. But thanks to the fencing power of Guinan, he decides not to do so. And then they send Hugh back to the Collective. That's the story in a nutshell. So let's talk about the actual story here. First of all, bringing back the Borg. This was something that, as I said in the opening, they really shied away from for quite a while because how do you top what you did in the best of both worlds? Daniel, you're... You don't. You don't, right? <laughs> exactly, you don't. Daniel, you're our Earl Grey guy here. So why don't you share your thoughts on this first? Uh, luckily... The, the writers were, I mean, they were aware of that they, they caught this lightning in a bottle with the Borg and and we didn't suffer from the same kind of, forgive me, Sherlyn, the oversaturation of the Borg that we get in Voyager. No, it's okay. I'm aware. To be fair, to be <laughs> fair, like the one of the four times or five times, whatever it is, you know, was Descent. So, you know, eh, That's true. It's not great. Yeah, it's I was going to say good. the TNG writers' hands are not completely clean with the Borg because they did give us Descent. But it, but um, but you know, at the time, you're right. When we only had best of both worlds, and this was kind of the follow up to that, the follow up of of the villains of of that amazing story. Uh, it they did show amazing restraint not to do it for two seasons, and then this episode came out and kind of became a classic in the TNG canon, and for good reason, I think. And so, uh, it'll be really interesting to, to to talk about that tonight. Yeah, they found a way to bring the Borg back without rehashing the best of both worlds and just trying to get a bigger battle scene or a more threatening situation for the Enterprise. Yeah, what they did effectively, I think, was... And and to give credit to the people who were writing the Borg on Voyager, they, they also tried to do this where they tried to make the Borg at least in somewhat, some possible way, relatable. And I think it worked yeah. very well here. But you know, there, you have to. There's a threshold where if you go too far, then they kind of become a, a shell of what they were. You said threshold. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Sorry, I had my Beavis and Butthead moment there, <laughs> pertaining to Voyager. So, Tyler, what are your thoughts on bringing the Borg back? You know, it's hard at this point to put myself back in the shoes because I did watch these when they were originally on TV, right? And it was different. The, the, all the other accumulated knowledge we have about them since then is so different from 
them being on the show at that time. And uh, right. it's hard. It's I really can't put myself back in those shoes anymore. It's really hard for me to do that. But um, I do, you know, with everything else that's that's happened, I'm, I'm kind of looking at it in a different way in the sense that, well, let's look at the way they've been handled in all the other systems since then. And this is one of the best examples, I think. I think it's really interesting the, the, the quandaries they bring up in this for the Federation and for the Borg and the counterpoint to the, you know, sort of faithless entity that's, uh, I, said, I think I said faithless and I meant faceless, um, that's, that's just driving forward in cubes, right? Um, I think it's I think it's really an interesting approach to it and, and really smart in a lot of ways. And so I, I still enjoy this episode quite a bit. I found myself nodding my head constantly as you were talking, Tyler. <laughs> I feel the same way, especially as a Voyager fan. Uh, yeah, a little bit too much Borg in that series. And this is a complete like offshoot. You know, if you try to think way back when to before we knew next to nothing about the Borg and they were just this seemingly indestructible menacing force. And then all of a sudden you're going to have a story about one of them. Very thought provoking. I love it. And one thing that I really do appreciate about this episode is it explores so many angles about this enemy that at the time we did not know much about. Yeah, I think what makes the Borg so effective, what made them so effective in the best of both worlds is that they were faceless and they were relentless. And there's nothing you could do to fight against them. Your best bet was just to run away and you couldn't reason with them. And it's really creepy, too, that they would ignore you, right, as an individual. You could go over to their ship and walk around and they would just ignore you. But they would try to assimilate the greater whole. And how do you make them relatable in a way that is effective when you've already established that you can't talk to them? And I think they did hit on a really interesting way to do it here. And like you said, Tyler, it's, it does feel different when you watch it now, because I also watched it in first run, and I've watched it many, many times over the years. I rewatched it many times before Voyager ever came around and did what they did with the Borg in the later seasons. And th this is something I wanted to ask you guys about. So in TweetBot, I have a saved search for hashtag Star Trek, and I have that column visible all the time in TweetBot on my desktop. And a tweet went by a couple of days ago, and it's someone I don't know. I don't know. I don't know this person. I just passed through. I'm just searching for Star Trek, and I don't know if they had seen the best of both worlds in the past or if they were just watching it for the first time. But their comment was, "I don't think the best of both worlds would be made today. It seems to violate too much canon about the Borg." And I thought, "Huh? <laughs> How can?" The Best of Both Worlds, which is the episode that introduced the Borg to I mean, Q Who introduced the Borg to us, but The Best of Both Worlds is the episode that actually really fleshed out what are the Borg, what is their real threat, and they could actually destroy us all and destroy the Federation. How can that violate canon when it is what actually established the canon in the first place? It seems that everything that came after and then what Voyager did with the Borg would be violating canon, if you want to say it that way. Although I don't view that as violating canon either, because that's also establishing the canon. You know, the, the, anything on the screen is the canon and it evolves over time. But this idea that the best of both worlds wouldn't be made today because it violates canon just seemed a bizarre concept to me. 
but when you watch this episode here, I Borg, you are you are now watching it with all the knowledge of everything that's come after it in your head. And then you're watching it and you're thinking, okay, well, why are, why are the Borg doing this? And why are they doing that? When later on, we know they do something else. So what are your thoughts on the idea that the best of both worlds, and then I guess by extension, I Borg here would be violating canon? I think it's exactly what you were saying, Chris. I think it's knowing all that we know now and then looking back on this episode that was made more than 20 years ago and thinking, what? Mm -hmm. Because it really doesn't compute with everything that we know about them now. But this was before First Contact. This was before Voyager. This was before so much stuff that we know about the Borg now. We have to remember, this was almost a blank slate. Yeah, it was almost a blank slate. Like, I feel like the this person, whoever made this, must it's it's like um you know and it, take this for what it's worth but it's like star wars prequelitis right like if you're young and you watch the the, the uh, prequel trilogy first and then you watch the original trilogy you're like wait a minute some things don't match up here and what's going on with that <laughs> but it's like well i mean yeah of course if you look in reverse order it it, it might not make sense but if if maybe this person saw all of voyager first and then saw tng and then was that's like, kind of what I felt when I read it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't it, it doesn't like. exactly fit right? And that does make sense because because like most things in writing, the Borg evolved over their first sure. appearance in Q Who to all the way to the end of Voyager. They they evolved very much. So yeah, I think that if they didn't evolve, is... they would have become very very boring, right? Yeah. yeah, totally. But also, well, also they just need to fit some other styles of narratives later. You know, there's the TNG is a different style of narrative than the other shows and the yeah. movies are. But I also think this is the case of someone just sort of misusing a word a little bit. Canon's probably not the right word. It's 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 something different about um, just you know looking at like what you were saying, Daniel. We're looking at that the the Borg in one place and another place and saying those don't seem like the same. That's not the same group. What's you know what's different here and why is this and and kind of misunderstanding that ref, that relationship. Maybe instead of canon, they meant to say my knowledge of the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah. my cannon <laughs> i mean if you go back the, the ship would look different everything would be different if they made it again today that's the other thing that's sure. kind of ridiculous about that that's so you true sure. yes so, yeah all right well i just wanted to run that by you guys because i found it very i did a double take and huh <laughs> on that one all right i think we all would have all right, well, let's move into the real meat of this story, which is how the characters themselves interact with this Borg, who they then name Hugh. I love the scene, too, right, where Beverly, Beverly says, I'm Beverly. And then Jordy says, I'm Jordy. And he says, we are <laughs> Hugh. It's like a <laughs> kindergarten classroom. Let's all learn to introduce ourselves. <laughs> it reminded me more of uh, interacting with a toddler. Yeah. yeah. What's this? Exactly. What color is this? How many are there? Well, that's a, kind of a big theme throughout the episode, right? Picard very specifically states, just because he looks young does not mean he's an innocent. But right. But really, we're kind of mm -hmm. we're kind of led to believe that he is. He's naive and he's innocent. He's not aware of the consequences of his actions. He has no idea what assimilation means or right. resistance or anything like that. So it's really, I mean, it is definitely a character study of the Borg. And in that way, I think it works very effectively. But it's like, wh 
what do what do you do with this with this being who whose whose idea of reality uh is so far separated from your own like they have that that little debate about you know Jordy's like my individuality is is what defines me it's what it's i can't imagine existing without that and it's it's just really interesting i think it is really interesting thing daniel about that and this plays back into watching this now after everything else that's come my initial thought was he is someone who was assimilated by the Borg. And like you said, he now has no knowledge of what he's doing. I mean, he's part of the collective and he just carries out the commands of the collective. But remember, this is season five TNG. And the last time we saw the Borg in the best of both worlds, we were told that they're born biological and they're babies. And then they grow up within the collective, which is, of course, different than what we learn later on about them. And and I wonder how that impacts the view of whether this person is innocent or not, even if they're young, because if you're born and raised into it, I mean, you are part of it from the beginning, although even that is unwilling on your part. You didn't decide to be born. But if you're an adult and you're assimilated and you're brought in, you also didn't choose that either. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's true. I think there's a thing here, too, where with just going back to that moment where he's you know acting a bit like a toddler and learning something. Where I think that's that's a big point in the, in the episode. It's he's been really inculcated in a particular culture, and it's almost like he's been in a cult his whole life and never seen anything else. Mm-hmm. And this is true of people who go to other countries, and this is true of people who learn a new language. You just have to, I mean, you start with how, saying hello and asking where the bathroom is, right? That's all you can do at first, right? <laughs> right. And later in the episode, when he's able to say no, I mean, it's definitely uh, a developmental theme of a child, and, and even at mm-hmm. the end, he's maybe a you know a rambunctious teenager at the most. So he was born into the cult of Borg. <laughs> yeah, the cult of Borg. Ooh, that's a good yeah. band name. <laughs> it is a good band name. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that. They can open for five-year mission. I think they should play with the Blue Man Group. And there should be the Blue Man Group, and then there should be the cult of Borg before. I think the Blue Man Group be, yeah. should have Andorian fight scenes in every show. <laughs> I'll take your blood to Andorra. <laughs> they really should, and they should have antennae sticking <laughs> out of should. their heads. Yes. Maybe maybe they're more Bolian than, than Andorian. <laughs> yeah, I think they are more Bolian, actually. Mm. Yeah. yeah, maybe. <laughs> so Picard, when his first reaction when Beverly wants to bring the Borg back up to the ship, it's interesting to watch Patrick Stewart play that part because there's this there's all this stuff going on inside Picard's head, the memories of being assimilated and what they went through in the best of both worlds. And it's all, it's, it's not in the script. It's just all conveyed through how Patrick Stewart is his facial expressions. And it's not even anything major, but it's just there. And he decides to bring the Borg very reluctantly decides to let Beverly bring the Borg up to the ship and when he tells Jordy, I need you to do all this stuff for me because we're going to bring a Borg onto the ship. I was expecting Jordy to say something like, are you crazy? But Jordy's just like, <laughs> oh, cool. Another technological gadget for me to make. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so they bring the yeah. Borg up to the ship. And then quickly, that seems to be like a humanitarian gesture for Picard 
But then very quickly, he decides that he's going to use this Borg as a weapon of genocide against the collective. And when I watched it again this time, it's it's a more sudden change in his demeanor, a more sudden decision than I remembered it being. What did you think about Picard's approach to this Borg drone? It's it's to me it's so strange. I I, I experienced the same thing you did, Chris. Where this time I was struck at, yeah. at the the crazy speed at which he decided. How, I watched how it on Blu-ray it. this time, by the way. So maybe the HD remastered picture helped me to feel the sudden nature of his change. <laughs> and then the five point one you know, surround sound, you really felt that sigh when he was thinking about bringing him yes. up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> resonating the walls. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny th- that you bring that up, like you, you know, in a joking way, but it's, I, I was also watching it in HD and I was struck because in the moment that he does make that decision and he changes his mind in the HD, you can see like he's standing in front of the, you know, he's standing in front of the brig and w- which has the lights on the floors all the way on the walls and the ceilings. And you can actually see it's very, very visible. Like, um, Patrick Stewart's eyes like you can see, it's all it, this is incredible though I think the way he acts it it's oh like yeah you can definitely. actually see him be like mm-hmm. you can tell that he is thinking and he's making a decision and he then decides this is what I want to do you know put aside the fact that like apparently Captain Picard is a, a software genius who decides oh, well all we have to do is hack the the root <laughs> security of the Borg and can you access I mean I guess it would make sense because he's I think he knew Lucutus. that because of being Lucutus yeah. otherwise Lucutus. it seems odd yeah right yeah, yeah. but um I, I I actually was really struck by first of all the, the 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 rapidity of how quickly he made the decision and also how actually kind of powerful it is in HD because I was really moved by by his acting in that yeah scene. That is a case where the remaster totally does affect the impact of the story. That's true. Yeah. I, for the record, I did not watch it in HD. I really don't know why. I probably could have, but I don't own the season five Blu-ray, so I didn't think about it. I just loaded up Netflix and went off. I know. <laughs> anyway, I think uh, this story evolves so nicely. I think our first instinct with only the best of both worlds to think of as... Um, background for knowing the Borg, we all, I think, are saying what Worf said and let's just kill him. Yeah. And get out of here now. Oh, you're going to bring him to the ship? Well, what if we could use him to destroy all the Borg? Oh, now that would be something. Yeah, there's something worth worth pointing out there, too. Like, I just always like to point these out. Beverly says, let's bring him up. And Picard's kind of looking like he's going to say no. And then Worf says, okay, let's just kill him. And Picard lets out that big sigh. And he's like, well, I have to disagree with Worf. So beam him up. Let's do it. (laughs) It's as if he's on the fence. (laughs) Worf forced his hand is what you're saying. I have to say no to Worf no matter what he says. So I just have to go off. (laughs) Otherwise, they would have destroyed him. And then they would have just gone on their merry way. End of mission. Right. Yeah. If Worf had said, let's let's use him as a weapon of genocide, Picard would say, no, we're not going to do that. You guys... (laughs) Just beam back up. Right. We've oh, got a diplomat to ferry over to <laughs> Stratos Dang 7. it, Worf. It's all his fault. I think the other thing to remember here, though, is that uh, talking about the history again, like, this is the, you know, we hadn't really seen anything since the, the first time the board were introduced on TNG at this point. And so this is kind of following through on now that pain that Picard went through, right? So this is, yeah. there's there's a yeah. reason why he makes that decision so quickly, I think. And yeah. it's it is... 
I agree with you guys. I think it was shocking how quick it was because I think of him as the the mediator and the balanced captain. And to, so to see him do that feels really rash, but it also makes sense for the character at the same time. Right. For normal Picard, I would expect it to be a case where they have a staff meeting and someone else <laughs> makes the case to him that we should do this. Like probably Data and Geordi. I mean, it would be a little odd for Data to come up with the idea of destroying the collective because it just doesn't seem like that's an emotional thing. It doesn't seem like he would do it. But it does seem like maybe Riker would be behind it or someone on the in the staff meeting would suggest this and they would have to convince Picard that this is the right course of action. That's the normal Picard. So this does show the impact that his assimilation had on his psyche and actually carries through. And if you think about it, it almost makes the way he behaves in first contact, which a lot of people don't like because they think it's uncharacteristic for Picard. Yes, it yes, makes a yes. little more sense in that way because something about when it comes to the Borg directly, it triggers something in him. You know. Yes. Oh, thank you so much for bringing this up, Chris, mm-hmm. because while I was watching this episode today, I saw so many kind of reflections mm-hmm. of first contact yeah. Picard in this Picard, yeah. which of course is way before first Long contact. Before, yeah makes a lot more sense yeah. now. You know, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I, I actually mentioned this to my, to my old Grey co-hosts this evening. I was like, you know, I'm watching this again. And it's like, I know that there is this, this contention that TNG, you know, the show Picard is so different than movie Picard. But I'm like, I see there's a, there's a scene between Picard and Guinan that directly mirrors the scene between Picard and Lily um, on the Enterprise E. And like, he's like swearing at her and he's like, you know, damn it, this is not what we should be doing. And it's like, this is so the same <laughs> character. This is, yeah, this, this is, this mm-hmm. is Picard. When he, when it becomes to the Borg, it's okay for him to yell and scream and be complicated and not know how he feels and change his mind. Like I, this, this episode, this rewatch totally affirmed for me that, that first contact Picard is Picard. There is no difference. He totally has the right to feel the way he, that he does. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, no matter how be- much better and processed he thinks he is from his assimilation from the Borg, the dude is not recovered. He has some trauma. He's got some issues. That's right, because he's a next generation character. He's He cannot do the temporary assimilation process that they can do on Voyager. <laughs> this is true this is yeah, true gonna pull that one in right chris You're like, ah, just, just because Shar is here, i just had to if, if Shar weren't here i wouldn't have brought that one up but there you but go the scene where you- oh you lie you would have too i just wouldn't be here to not defend it because <laughs> there's no way i can it, right? <laughs> yeah you know i'm sorry that was pretty ridiculous not not to give you know, i mean we're we're praising patrick stewart of course because and well deserved because you no know, he's he's brilliant but Mm-hmm. But the scene where he acts as Locutus yeah. to Hugh, and you can tell he's he's almost pained to do it. He's like he's he's edging him on because he wants he wants this Borg to fulfill this stereotype that he has of the Borg. He wants to be justified in his decision to completely wipe them mm-hmm. out, and and it's and he's pained to realize that he knows he he knows he's just been hurt by them, and it's just an emotional response, and it's it's just. A, it's a moment of brilliant acting. And then he realizes when Hugh finally says, I want this. I don't yeah. want Jordy to die. I want this. And, and, and Picard just like, okay, all right. Well, that, that made my decision up right there. 
Yep. That's my favorite scene in the whole episode. It is just so... The lead-in to that scene has the best shot in the entire episode, which is Hugh leaning over to the fish tank and saying, <laughs> Livingston, you will be assimilated. <laughs> oh, man. I was going to mention that there's a little bit of Section 31 and Borg, maybe yeah, collusion right. going on there. Yeah, but sure. visually, that is the most incredible shot, especially in HD with Hugh leaning in and then you see Livingston right there. It's a beautiful shot. Yeah. So beyond Picard... Jordy is really the linchpin of the whole thing. Jordy's the one who draws out the individuality. Jordy has some, he has a way with machines, right? Because he's Data's best friend. <laughs> now he's his Hugh's best friend. I would choose to stay with Jordy. I can see Hugh and Data bunked up with Jordy in his quarters. <laughs> <laughs> they all love Playing him. Playing D&D or something. But... But LeVar Burton also does a great, he always does a great acting job. There's some, there's an emotion within LeVar Burton that really comes out easily when he plays Geordi or anything. But his connection with Hugh is very important here. And he's the one person who, like Picard has to come around, Guinan has to come around. Beverly, I don't know if Beverly ever comes around does she Beverly's like this is my patient around well I mean she could come around the other way and seeing that yes this is my patient but he represents a great threat to us all I don't think she ever made that loop there Uh, that's true she almost had I felt kind of like too narrow of a scope where um she just kind of jumped to the conclusion that we all eventually see for ourselves at the very start of the episode, and it comes off as a little weird, but she, you know, she's a doctor. She, her job is to heal, and she's on that one-track mind. Yeah, she is. So Jordy, though, he was, I mean, he was very cautious up front, but I think more open to the idea and, and maybe more intrigued by this individual Borg. And and he was, he never seemed frightened by the Borg, even when he's in there alone and Hugh is telling him that you will be assimilated. He's like, look, buddy, look around. I don't think you're going to be assimilating me. Which actually, again, thinking about what we know about the Borg now when we watch it, I would still be worried yeah. he might, you know, jab something into my neck. But the Borg of this time period you know, don't do that. And Had I not known better, that's what I would have expected. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, there was, and I, and I say this sarcastically, um, Worf was standing in between him and the Borg. So, I mean, really, you know, if, if you if you follow the history of TNG, Worf would have just gotten knocked aside and and he would have totally assimilated <laughs> right. Jordy. But, you know, presumably there's this very strong Klingon in between him and the and the Borg. So, Well, first of all, everybody loves Jordy, except for the ladies for some reason. Like, poor Jordy. <laughs> <laughs> the non-holographic Even- ladies is what you mean. Yeah. Well, that's she, she's also a machine. <laughs> to be fair, it's right back, back to to Chris's point. But yeah, I you know I think that um a lot of the the, the sort of Beverly arc was was given to to Guinan in this case. She had more to do in this episode than a lot of episodes, and I think so. I think Beverly just had to represent the I I'm a doctor and I'm gonna um, stand my moral ground on this, and so everybody else got the room to move. And I think it would have been too many people for her to also be perseverating back and forth on this. So I, I think yeah. that actually worked mm. pretty well, but um, yeah, Jordy, you know, he's just he's just a likable guy. They they should just send him to the Borg, and the Borg the next week would be like, you know what, guys, let's go get a beer. Everything's great. 
Um, let's, let's have a good time. <laughs> they would all have visors instead of the eyepiece that Hugh <laughs> yeah. has. There you go. <laughs> Very Word stylish. fashion trends. Peer pressure. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. It's funny because that we mentioned this because so Picard normally is the steadfast moral high ground holder. Like that's 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 usually his place of 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 in an episode, he's the one that's like, this is what we have to do because this is the right thing to do. In the event that he's not that, he doesn't hold that position, Guinan leads him to that position. Yeah. But this is a very unique episode where both of them, technically, I guess, start out on the wrong end of that spectrum and kind of change each other's minds th- through this whole episode. So it's really interesting because it's, I can't think of another episode where that, that kind of happens. That's true. Yeah, Guinan usually... Yeah talks Picard into the position that she wants him to take and does it with reverse psychology very often, right? But here, yeah, it's true. And But of course, they both are coming from a position where they've both been harmed by the Borg. And especially yeah, right. for her, her entire race has been scattered and the homeworld been destroyed by the Borg. So she has a very strong personal anger towards the Borg and... I was going to use the word vendetta, although I don't know what she could personally do against the Borg. But uh, cat hands, cat hands, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She should have done that. She should have when she talked to Hugh. She should have put the cat hands. Borg, <laughs> Guinan foo, yeah. So you can understand why they both have this position up front, but uh, yeah, definitely. But she's the one who's. Is this true? I was going to say she's the one who's open. I guess it is true. She's the one who's open to change because she does go and talk to Hugh. Mm-hmm. But she wants to make, initially when they're fencing, because the standard, you know, the fencing officer who's always on duty, I guess he decided to take shore leave in this episode. And so Picard had to fence Guinan instead. And also Riker must have been somewhere else because usually Guinan likes to do the phaser game with Riker where they shoot things. <laughs> So she's fin- Guinan, she's always playing games, I guess, when she's not bartending. Because, you know, working up those arm muscles, it's really good for bartenders. So. That's right. But she pretends to be injured during the fencing and makes the point to Picard. Like, you felt sorry for me. Look where that got you. Don't even think about changing your mind. And then she goes and changes her own mind and then comes. and. But I don't think she changes Picard's mind, but she does get him to be open to the idea of actually talking to Hugh. And she has a really good point. Like if you're yeah. going to use this person and she insists on calling him a person, even when Picard doesn't want to, to um, commit genocide and destroy his race, you should at least look him in the face first, look him in the eyes. But it's really Hugh. Yes. Who changes Picard's mind ultimately. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that he says later, I didn't want to meet up with mm-hmm. him. Or was it Guinan who said this? No, Picard I does. I he says, kind of I think I intentionally, you know, avoided. Okay. That's not verbatim, but All right. he admits that yeah. he stayed away because he feared he might change his mind. Yeah, I think deep down he knew that if he actually had a, a face to the name, yeah. that it would change his mind. But I think I sensed that pretty much all through the episode with Picard that he because I mean Picard's very intelligent man I think that he had to be intentionally avoiding and he wanted to keep the separation between him and the Borg 
and I'm sure that comes from his experience with them as well. I mean, they treated him in a very impersonal manner, although they did give him a name as well. So I don't know if they were trying to turn him into some kind of pet or not. <laughs> That's right. I will give you a name and you will become one of yes. us. I don't know. I don't know if this is the best time to bring this up, but I am curious because I was thinking about this and I, I, I've mentioned this on Earl Grey before. Um, given the circumstances, Picard of all the captains of, of Star Trek, I think is unique in the fact of the decision he finally makes. I feel like, I actually feel like of all, and you know, it's great that Chris and Charlin are here because I actually feel like Cisco and, and Janeway especially would have landed on the other side of the fence of let's get rid of this enemy. Let's eliminate them completely. But do you think that I, I kind of feel like this is a uniquely Picard decision that he made like a very like he landed on a side of the fence that's very picard-esque like do you guys feel like that that do you feel that way or, or is that just me do you think that this, no this i, is I very... agree with you yeah mm, i'm on the fence about that just because of seven of nine i think your point daniel with cisco absolutely cisco would have Returned. I mean, because they state in this episode a number of times that we're at war and they say, well, there's not been a formal declaration of war, but we're at war. And of course, in Cisco's case, they really were at war. I mean, that was a full on war. He would have uh, made the decision to send Hugh back with the the paradoxical geometric shape computer algorithm and, and destroy them. <laughs> but Jane, Charlie- I don't know. See, the thing with Seven of Nine, Char, is... With Seven of Nine, I think Janeway saw that there was this human girl who was assimilated. And it's another one of Janeway's maternal instinct moments, which, of course, are very inconsistent, but they are written there often in the series. She wanted to bring Annika back more so than it being any pity towards the Borg directly. But, of course... Voyager was put in a unique situation where they kept encountering Borg who had some sense of individuality, which again, I think as we'll talk about near the end here, stems from this very episode that we're talking about now. Right. Well, not only that, but Janeway also had her share of instances where she too wanted to destroy the Borg. I mean, Mm -hmm. think Scorpion with Species 8472 and then Unimatrix Zero and then of course Endgame. So... uh, Obviously, she kind of probably had, like, I think uh, the instances where she wanted to destroy the Borg outweigh the times she had any compassion whatsoever. Just, I think, Seven of Nine is a slightly different thing, and you got to throw that into the mix. Why she had compassion for her, I'm not entirely sure, but she did. I think the difference between Janeway and Picard here is that Picard, even when he's feeling the anger and the rage, is able to pull back and take the moral high ground. I guess is how we would describe it, which is the theme of TNG itself. Whereas Janeway, if she feels wronged, she ultimately wants to get back at the Borg for it. Very much at the <laughs> end true. with Endgame, where she's going to go destroy the Borg Queen because she's not happy with how life turned out for her crew over the years right. after they And even back. though Picard in First Contact goes about as far as we've ever seen him go he does turn back then too so you make a good point yeah it's just it's just to me it's just interesting because i mean you're right like he always gets to that edge 
and like and all the captains do all of the captains do they get to that edge and and they all make just different decisions when they get there but picard always seems to be the one who for better or worse and you may call it naivete he's the the optimist the one who says more like what is right is more important than the outcome of whatever decision that you make is and that's kind of what he makes here and it's just it's just I'm not saying it's better or worse than any of the captains. I'm just saying it's it's very emblematic of who he is as a character. Very interesting, yeah. I think. Well, and it is the mm-hmm. theme of TNG, which is the closest Star Trek to Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future than than any, including the original series. And that's the message, right? That in the end, do the right thing, even if it may not necessarily be what you think is the best decision and will lead you to the best outcome for you personally. Yeah, I think I've actually seen this debate in a lot of shows, but usually it's just it's kind of just the uh, the Beverly debate from the beginning. Well, we have to do the right thing right from the beginning. Um, this is like this is actually kind of a common theme of, uh, you know, we're we're going to we're going to have something come up like this and we have to be better than our enemy. We have to be the one who holds the moral high ground. And that's part of the reason I really like this episode, because it's not what they did. They said, well, do we? What is the right thing to do here? You know, how are, how's, how are we actually going to handle this right. in the real world when lives are at stake? Because um, it's just too easy to do that, in, in, you know, in all the other platforms. And the other thing I think is interesting is that the time this was made kind of factors in, again, the same way we were talking about, you know, this was early in the Borg's run. It's also the just the, the type of TV that was made in that era. You didn't tend to have antiheroes. Like, it just wasn't. Like it would have been really weird. Right. This was ninety two, right? For in nineteen ninety one or ninety two, for them to have something like like a, basically a virus go kill all the rest of the Borg, that would have been really controversial at that time. Right. Well, speaking of Beverly, another thing I wanted to ask you about is whether we see ethics or naivety in Beverly, because it's really easy as a doctor to say, well, this is just her Hippocratic oath; she's going to help this individual because he's injured. And that seems to be the position that she takes. And we see that with other doctors as well. I mean, we see it with Bashir and Jim Hadar as well. And in that case, O'Brien takes the position that Picard takes through a lot of this episode, that these people want to kill us. We shouldn't be helping them. In this episode, Beverly really carries that Roddenberry ideal and and what Vulcans say, right? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. But at the same time, she's potentially putting everyone on the ship in danger and the entire Federation in danger as well. It's true. By yeah, the many of having what? compassion for this one Borg drone, which, as we've already said, doesn't have any self-awareness. He's not, he may be injured, but Within Borg society, if you want to call it a society, this collective, they have a way of dealing with that. And they're just, as he says, they're just reabsorbed. They're just part of the collective. And it's a really foreign idea for us and a foreign idea for Beverly. But I, her position, it almost feels, I get it from an ethical standpoint, a medical standpoint, but it does feel naive, especially what they just went through two years earlier and the man that she loves, even though she won't admit it, was assimilated by the <laughs> Borg and she almost lost him. And then at the end of the episode, what's even more interesting is that Hugh himself refutes her position and tells Picard 
his personal needs don't matter, that it's really the needs of the many. Where Beverly's concerned about one individual, and Hugh himself is a Borg, is concerned about everyone else, and not the Borg collective, you know, the needs of the many, the collective, but actually the needs of the people aboard the Enterprise. I find it a bit disingenuous, and this may be a little off topic, but I find it a bit disingenuous. I actually think that every other doctor in Star Trek, for better or worse, are, are in a better position to, to, to play that card, to be like, oh, I, I'm, you know, I can see Bones and I can see Flocks and, and, I, and, and the Doctor. I can see all of those characters saying, this is very important that we, that we rehabilitate this person. Beverly never... No, I just don't see it. It's to me. It's she's not that she's not a bad doctor, but it's just that she's never. Especially, you're right, Kristen. Especially in the situation that she's in with the man she was in love with, like she went on board the board cube with everybody else. She knows mm-hmm. very full well of the situation. Like, I don't know. I just to me, it's just like I understand that they put her in this position because, like I mentioned earlier. Picard and Guinan, who would normally be the voice of the of the morality position, they can't do that. They have to learn. But it's very it's to me it, it was almost distracting that Beverly was the one that was like, no, 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 we we have to protect this Borg above all other you know yeah. all other concerns. I kind of think there's a different question here too, which is it's not a binary argument, and this kind of makes it into a binary argument. It's either we save this Borg and put everyone at risk. Or we kill all the Borg with him, right? Or we kill him in the moment. Either one. When there's actually a bunch of other outcomes besides that. I mean, say what you will about negotiating with the board. Like, that's something that could have happened at this point. They could have, you know, found some common ground out of this. And this could have been the olive branch that led to something else. And maybe everyone is actually safer. Because, you know, you have these badass Borg watching one side of the quadrant. The Federation's on the other side or whatever that is. So I think just assuming that there's only two outcomes is a... Is sort of a, a you know again kind of a, a false argument to have, and I think from a doctor's yeah. point of view, you know, anytime someone can live, there's opportunities for things to happen that there aren't if they die. Yeah, maybe. Although at this point, I cannot personally see any way that they would have negotiated with the Borg because actually, the event that makes it possible for Janeway to negotiate with the Borg is that the Borg need help. Until they need help they're not going to talk to you. I mean, they've been doing this for ages. Assimilating worlds, they're not going to talk to you. I don't know. I don't I don't think that there was any option here for them to wait for that ship to arrive and then try to talk to those other Borg that came to pick up the crashed cube and the dead drones. And ultimately, I mean, you know, Chris is right he, that that was that decision that the writers made that the Borg had to be in trouble in order to reach a bar you'd have to have a bargaining chip but that is what i mean that's the first and most important and ultimate decision that neutered the borg was the fact that we had been told up until that point that the borg were the big bad that you don't get bigger than the big bad and the fact that there was something else that was above that is what led to the downfall or the 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 weakening of the borg as as a threat at least to the federation yeah. Well, the the defanging. Actually, on the Blu-rays, there's a commentary for this episode with Mike and Denise Okuda and with Rene Echevarria, who wrote the episode. And Echevarria actually mentions that a lot of fans saw this episode as defanging the Borg. 
So I guess at the time mm. they saw it that way because obviously viewed within the context of all Borg episodes, this doesn't defang the Borg. This actually just introduces a new interesting angle on the Borg. It gives them some character besides just being a faceless enemy. But even then people yeah, kind of felt like maybe you're weakening this villain by even allowing us to talk to them at all. Uh, yeah, I can actually see this because, uh, I don't know, you are showing one Borg person, uh, granted one, one vulnerable individual, but they're still vulnerable. Yeah. And they still control him, essentially. They control his fate. Whereas before this, never would have thought about it. Yeah, I don't disagree with, with everything you guys are saying. I guess the only point I'm trying to make is this is a trope in sci-fi where this enemy comes out of nowhere and they're they're unbeatable and they're unknowable. And, you know, you could even say this happened with Klingons. And then next thing you know, you're sort of in a, in a partnership with them or, you're, you know, you have your you're buddies on some level and it's just happened again and again. And so I'm not even saying that it's realistic for the Borg in this situation. I'm just saying as a narrative device and as someone who is if you're holding out hope for the universe and you're a hopeful person, that's an outcome you might envision that's not necessarily just saving one Borg or, you know, right. genocide. Like there's other there's other things on that spectrum. So maybe you're saying maybe Beverly may have been thinking, like if I help this drone, maybe eventually we can you know, reach some kind of understanding. I kind of doubt she went that far, but yeah, I mean, and, and basically I think what I'm hearing from you is like, well, that's naive, but that's fine. <laughs> that's the question we're asking, right? <laughs> I think Beverly comes across as naive, but she might be looking at bigger picture stuff like this. I mean, think about what the Enterprise C sacrificing itself for the Klingons at Narendra 3. Look at what happened there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what if we do save this Borg? We don't know what would happen. We have to try, right? We have the opportunity. I think that's where she's coming from. Well, also, she's but, the only parent out of everyone in the entire debate, right? Like everyone well, else debatable. in the debate is not a well. Yeah, is <laughs> Picard male? So we don't, we don't, we don't. Right, Alexander wasn't in the show at this point, right? I'm just all of a sudden doubting myself. Oh no, he was. He was definitely in the show at that point. Oh, okay. We, yeah. No, I was referring but, to whether or not Beverly is actually parenting her child on the ship because he's just always <laughs> oh, running around uh, doing his or own if thing. Picard is I, yes, exactly. Dad. I was referring to whether or not Picard is the father of Wesley. But, um, <laughs> Gosh, there are so know. many possibilities here. <laughs> All right. Right. But I do want to say, you know, it. I understand that Chris. If you're going to level that criticism against I Borg, I get that. But there is a like there's a vast chasm between Iborg and Scorpion, right? Where they actually yeah. do end up, yeah. And Scorpion, like making this one Borg that you can talk to, and the entire species that you can't. It, it, there is a very there's a distinction there, and I don't think they neutered the Borg because at, at no point in TNG, even in Descent, which I think is not a great episode or no. series of episodes. Um, they very, and I think very smartly, they made that group of Borg, like a, a rogue group of Borg. And then there was the actual collective where you could not bargain with them. And so right. any of these other kind of comparisons that you might make, they don't work. Like you, like they're not like Klingons. That's the whole scary part of the Borg is that they're not like Klingons or Romulans or anything else. They're even the Dominion. They're not like these people. They, these are people who you cannot go up and have a conversation with. 
unless you're Janeway. And then, you know, and then... <laughs> so it's, Because she's a badass and she can do anything, <laughs> so it's yes. Scary, so it's scary. <laughs> I think it's because coffee, just coffee, makes her able to power coffee. Fueled by coffee. Power of coffee. Well, let's talk about one last thing which relates to this to close out here. And these are the repercussions of Picard's actions in this episode and really the actions of the entire crew and just the encounter itself between Hugh and the crew. And it does play into the idea of individuals and groups. We see throughout Star Trek, we see it in Descent, which you just talked about, Daniel, where we have this rogue group of Borg who are, of course, led by Lore. So there's another influence there. But it does stem from the fact that Hugh felt some individuality, correct? And then in Voyager, we see a a long storyline that revolves around groups of Borg who are having feelings of individuality. And they have this, you know, they can sort of separate themselves mentally at times from the Borg. And I feel like this all stems from the fact that Geordi, in particular, by befriending Hugh here, helped this one Borg drone learn what it's like to be an individual. And there's the whole debate in the... How many staff meetings do we have in this episode? There's (laughs) the final staff meeting. There's this debate about whether they should erase his memories or not. And they decide to keep his memories intact. And the assumption is that those memories will be erased by the Borg when they come and they and they pick him up. But in the final scene, which is especially powerful in HD again, when the Borg are beaming out, Hugh turns his eye and looks over at Geordi. And Geordi looks kind of shocked that he realizes that Hugh does still remember who he is at that moment in time. Now, whether that will last, you know, we don't know. But he does go back to the collective, I assume, and introduces this little inkling of what it means to be an individual to the collective. And it feels like that picks up speed over time. And then as you get into Voyager, you see it having more and more effect on people. And to create a parallel also with what we see in Voyager and the way that the collective reacts to those who are feeling individuality, to create a parallel with our own world today, you know, we see a number of countries which have become more totalitarian in recent years because every time the people start to express themselves, the government feels nervous that we're going to lose control. They really, really clamp down on them. And that's what happens in Voyager when they're really determined, the Queen's determined to snuff out any cells that may be filling individuality. One thing I was struck by, I, I will say this, is, um, you know, the, the big dilemma this this episode is, do we introduce this, for, you know, it, it's silly to me when I'm watching the episode, but this this computer virus, essentially, yeah. which is just an inverted shape, apparently, which will cascade into something. I that, think they I mean, got the, it out of a 20th century brain teaser book, actually. <laughs> pop up book. <laughs> 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 right, right, right. The mechanism is silly, but the idea makes sense. Like that they would, you know, like it would introduce something to the Borg that they could never understand and it would, whatever. And, and and you get the idea that it would violently collapse their society. But at the end of the episode, Picard is like, perhaps individuality will will also have this kind of same effect. And, and you're like, wait a minute. 
but you're trying to avoid that at this point. Your whole moral dilemma this episode was not to, I mean, they say destroy and they're very kind of, I think, vague about what does that mean when they destroy it? Like if, if we introduce this virus into the Borg collective, what does that mean? They, they start becoming individuals and they just can't handle it. We don't know. Well, I think the, the shape itself, that plan that they had was the, the TNG equivalent of Kirk logic bombing a computer, right? It would just, right. yes, they would finally like, this does not compute. And then they would, the, the collective would explode. I saw the cubes everywhere would explode at the same time. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't I mean it's not it's not actually explicitly stated, but 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 the fact that he's like maybe this individuality is going to shape change the Borg as a species. I'm like, well, you're really your moral dilemma is moot at this point because you're still willing to introduce something to this species that's literally going to change them fundamentally. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, but I think as a human being Picard sees individuality as an innately good thing. Well, sure, but the Borg see assimilation as an innately good thing. Right, sure, yeah, I know. I, I see the conflict. Yeah. I'm just trying to purport the other point of view here. <laughs> no, I think- well, that, that brings a. I, I did want to bring this up because that brings us to the conversation Jordy has with you. And I was really struck by it because, you know, as... And I know this is a reflection on human society, so we go with how things are as humanity. But when Jordy's talking to Hugh about... Uh, a collectivism versus individuality. He, Jordy is like, I can't understand. It doesn't make, it makes no sense to me. I'm an individual. I make my own decisions. This is what I do. But in the Star Trek ideal system, he should be totally okay with the being that exists that doesn't make their own decisions. They just, they make the decisions that are made by the collective. Like I was kind mm-hmm. of struck by the fact that it was, it's very absolutist for Jordy. And then ultimately becomes absolutist for everyone that no individualism is the only acceptable, you know, philosophy in this situation. Well, it's the good one, right? For humanity. From well, our perspective. Yeah. yeah and, that, our perspective. and that's the funny thing. The Borg are probably actually more like a real democracy in a way, except for everyone's making the decision at the same time all the time. <laughs> So in some mm. sense, it's like the, you know, <laughs> foreshadowing about wars that are happening right now. We're like, oh, you need to be a democracy. Do it. But in this case, we say, no, 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 no. You need to be an individualist. You know, it's it's not I, I agree with what you're saying. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have a collective like that. It's just it's so foreign to us that we can't handle it. And then yeah. I think the fact that they attacked us probably has a little something to do with not liking <laughs> that it. I might have a little bit to do with it. Yes, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. If, we, if they'd met him on an away mission and everybody was nice, that might have been different. Right. <laughs> you could also argue that what Picard did by sending him back and, and introducing individuality, even briefly, could be what led the Borg to negotiate with Janeway in the first place. Just somewhere mm, maybe. in the collective consciousness, there was just that little seed of idea of individuality and actually communicating and working together that was there that allowed them to make the decision to talk to Janeway in the first place. This actually, that actually leads me to a question, Chris, and you would know this better probably, well, certainly than me, maybe than anybody I know. Are, have any books or comics been written from the Borg point of view? Has that ever happened? From the Borg point of view? Because that would be really interesting to look at it in the way that there's, there's some book that just came out where it's from a bee's point of view, which sounds stupid. I know, but it's really good. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's actually just helps you to understand no, that where, you know, awesome. what, what they do day to day and how they communicate. And I, 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 I still awesome. think we don't yeah. really know. And that'd be really kind of interesting from my perspective. I mean, there have, there have been with some, you know, story where we see things from the Borg side a bit, but what you're talking about, I'm, I can't think of anything on that level. Yeah, it wouldn't make you couldn't do it as a as a movie or a TV show because it's all it's all internal. Yeah. Nobody nobody talks to each other. It'd have to be a book. Yeah, but you know what? May, and I'll bring this up, and maybe I'm crazy, and this is just me. But um, you know, Chris, as as the Deep Space Nine guy, what I think is that the the very famous moment that that Quark has, and I believe he's talking with Odo at the time when he's talking about root beer and how insidious. The, the the federation is i feel like yeah. hugh could have that same conversation you know if he was of the same state of mind of how this is picard essentially or the federation kind of very subtly inserting what they think is the best way for organisms to be or live into the collective so it's it's the same kind of thing where it's like yeah the more we interact with this this body of people the more we're becoming similar to them so yeah. Hmm. It's an interesting thought. Well, let's wrap up with our final thoughts here. We're passing an hour. And final thoughts and ratings, of course. So, Tyler, what are your final thoughts on the episode? I have a couple quick things. I'm going to try not to hold on to any of these too long. But one of them that I think is interesting that we didn't touch on is, um, you know, a lot of times wars now are fought by a bureaucracy. Like somebody shoots someone but they're just following orders and, you know, you keep going up the line and somebody signed a paper that didn't mean anything to allocate a budget. And this whole thing reminds me of that. What Daniel just said actually brought it back up with me again, which was, um, you know, in, in very this kind of similar way that the U.S. does where our culture just permeates the world and we just expect it. I, I kind of feel like that's mm-hmm. going on here. And so there's a it's, it's interesting to see Picard be the one who's actually going to say, I'm not going to meet that person. I just want to make this decision without seeing them. And uh, we're going to go murder all these people, right? And then you see the other side, like the Borg actually get more humanized and the people get dehumanized. So I really like the episode. I'm going to give it seven hologram stickers over your eye. Oh, okay. <laughs> of how many? I, I don't think we had to say how many, do we? We don't have to no, say. No, I'm just saying. You know, we don't. That's one of the great mysteries uh, of our rating so- system. <laughs> that's good. It's a good that's rating. Right. Let's just say that. Okay, he stole my rating, and I'm still going to say it at the end. That's why I asked him of how many. But um, no, you know, it's <laughs> it, it's interesting. It's a super interesting episode. There's a lot that happens because you know because of what came before it, and there's a lot that happens because of what comes after it. And it's 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 really interesting. You know, we did talk a little bit about how what does this do to the Borg, and because of the Borg, and it's like a snapshot. It's a snapshot of of 1992 of what do we do with this species that we don't know what to do with? Like, it's really interesting to look at it in that perspective. And there's a lot of moral issues that are really uh, questioned. And there's a lot of, I really enjoy the episode. And every time I watch it, I think I get a little bit different take on it, depending on like where I am, you know, in my life or whatever. But I actually think it's a fantastic episode and, you know, second to best of both worlds for whatever that means. It's, it's just the best Borg episode of TNG. Um, but I'm going to give it, not to steal from Tyler's Thunder, I'm going to give it seven of nine. That's what I was going to <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I think it well really played, appreciates sir. that, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. How about you, Shark? 
I love this episode. It was a lot of fun to revisit it. It had been some time since I have seen it. And now I think I've seen it in a very different light. And I think it's got some great messages and meanings into it. Very thought-provoking with everybody's different perspective on what should happen with Hugh. How they should use Hugh. If they should use him at all. Things of that nature. I think that's very reflective in our culture nowadays where... It seems like we're always at the threat of going to war with somebody if we aren't, in fact, at war with someone, right? And, you know, the whole Stockholm Syndrome thing, where if you get to know somebody in the culture for which you are fighting against, then I think interacting with the individual of that group helps you realize, oh, these are not necessarily all the same people. They aren't a bunch of zombies like the Borg. Yeah. And so then it kind of changes your mind, makes you see a little bit of a different perspective. Even if you only understand a very tiny bit of where they're coming from, you at least see that. I think it does change your mind. And I think uh, watching Picard do that, watching Guinan do that, watching Geordi do that, was it's just fascinating to watch them go through all these steps. Because I think as an audience, we feel a lot like Worf at the very beginning. Let's kill him because of best of both worlds. Like, oh, God, they're going to kill us if we don't kill them. So let's do it. But then all this happens, and suddenly we're thinking about the Borg completely differently. So I'm going to give this one eight eyepieces. Eyepieces are a popular rating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I agree with all you guys. It's it's a very, very good TNG episode. It's very true to TNG. And as I said a couple of times today, get the Blu-rays and watch it, because I really found that this episode is more powerful than I remember. The the character interactions are more powerful and more meaningful than I remember. And I actually do think that the HD picture, people wonder, people say, well, I, you know, I have the DVDs or I have Netflix. Why would I need to buy it again? The acting, if there, there's an emotion in this episode, there are nuances to what the characters are going through that you really need to be able to see. And when you can really see them, there's something more to this story than I think most of us remember that comes out. But it's it's a very good TNG-esque story, where they start, where they end up, the decisions that Picard makes. And it does have a lasting impact on the rest of Star Trek and what they do with the Borg, even in ways that you may have never even thought about before. You can connect threads between Hugh and what happens later in TNG and, as I said, all through Voyager as well. One thing we didn't talk about here, and maybe I'll make this a topic on on the orb sometime, but I may have mentioned it earlier. I know I did in the other side of the room. The similarity between what Picard considers doing here and what Starfleet Medical and Section 31 does to the founders during the Dominion War. is It's an interesting parallel, and it's another one that I hadn't really thought about very much until I started prepping for the show today. So I really enjoyed this episode. I'm going to give it nine topological anomalies. <laughs> All right. Well, Tyler and Daniel, thanks for joining us today on the show. Before we let you go, tell everyone where they can find you around the interwebs and the network. Tyler, how about you? Yeah, if you want to look for me, um, I don't know what you guys are doing. I'm on the new social network. You just look me up on Alcove, and I'm there Alcove, all, all right, night, yeah. every night. 
I like Alcove because you don't even have to check your messages. They just pipe right into your Yeah, brain. it's just a straight, I just log right in and, and all night I'm just with all my friends all the time. <laughs> or you can tweet me at Flintastic. It's F-L-Y-N-T-T-A-S-T-I-C. And then it'll, it'll come to me in Alcove still, but it's fine. Excellent. All right. And people can hear you on some past episodes of The Ready Room and also some episodes of Warp 5 with me. And I, I, w- I hope to do some more soon. Um, so now that my schedule's opening up, if you'll have me again, um, perhaps I'll I Absolutely. Can make some time. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that. All right, Daniel, where can people find you? They can find me on the best TNG podcast on the Trek FM network. Uh, that's Earl Grey <laughs> with my co-hosts, Darren and Philip. Seriously, come on over. This is the stuff we talk about all the time. Doesn't it sound exciting? Um, and, uh, they, it is, yeah, it is. It's very exciting to the Earl Grey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Charlene. Thank you so much because we mentioned, uh, to the journey every single episode. It's, it's, you do. And I, it always puts a smile on my face every time you guys give a shout out on to the, a shout out to, to the journey. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes. they can find me personally if they'd like to, I am uh, at one up Dan on Twitter and that is the number one, not the word. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us today, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Well, Chris, that was a lot of fun talking Borg and not Voyager Borg for a change with Daniel and Tyler discussing iBorg from TNG. That's right. This was like talking about Borg Classic. You know, it's like New Coke and Coca-Cola Classic. On Voyager, you have New Coke, which tastes a bit more like Pepsi. And then on TNG, we have classic Borg. Indeed, this is classic. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Anyone listening to this who didn't live through the 80s is <laughs> going, what are you talking about? New Coke They're not going to have a clue. Classic. What, Crystal Pepsi? Is that what you mean? No. Oh, Crystal Pepsi. That was something, wasn't it? Yeah. We can it make everything clear now. Let's just. I'm glad that didn't catch on or we would have clear salsa. We would have clear everything these days. Really, you think? Do you remember uh, no, the clear no, no. beer that they did? I do. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it, I think they would turn everything green. You remember the weird ketchup flavors they used to have? Those Maybe you I don't, don't. They were in the I states. I really remember those. Yeah. Uh, we had purple ketchup, green ketchup. I, I figured they would just turn green, turn everything green, and then like data, we could say it is green. <laughs> See, now that would have been perfect. Yes. <laughs> Well, I enjoyed talking about the Borg today as well, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network over the past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. And we go to the theater. I still remember this, even though I was only four. I still remember this. We go to the theater and we're watching it. And then that Klingon dog shows up on screen. And I'm like, (laughs) what the frack is that? Get me out of here right now. Earl Grey. He would have excellent bedside manner. Here is a joke I know. Uh, uh. Would you like a Sumerian sunset? It is pretty. It will lift you from your terminal case of gout. Ah, ah, choo! The ready room. I think that she is picturing him in the en naturel division of (laughs) synchronized (laughs) work. Captain Fine. Which is not an Olympic sport, but they are considering it, it as a demonstration <laughs> sport for the Rio de Janeiro games coming up. The Orb. Is it this thing like where women like bad boys or something? Does Dakot have a Harley that I don't know about? 
Uh, I think he must. Um, and, <laughs> know. you know, he rides around on a Harley. Uh, he's he uh, just breaking hearts all over the place. To the journey! He says, yeah, they want me to read. They're saying it's mine if I want it, but I don't want to do it. And she, like, jumps out of her chair and, like, shakes him. She's like, what? Are you kidding? This is Star Trek. Are you kidding? You would be made for life. Commentary, Trek stars. Yeah. I thought you were going to do a Brandon Braga voice. <laughs> It's uh, it's really hard to do a Brandon Braga voice. That's, that's pretty good. It's right gotta there. be, uh, you know, it's gotta be kind of quiet. Literary treks. Again, it was originally published as a scroll form, and then later as a codex book, and now both in print and electronic form in the 24th century. And this particular edition of it has an introduction and afterward and modern commentary by a 24th century Klingon novelist named Karatak. Continuing mission goal was to try to get as much Trek content into people's hands and to let people explore the Trek universe with their own spaceship and build their own crew in the way they want, customize and design and just, you know, to be in your own Star Trek world. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond, actually, because we cover science and creative beyond Star Trek and everything here on Trek FM. And you'll find these pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. So whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, Spreaker, Swell, we're also on BlackBerry and we're on SoundCloud now. You can find us pretty much everywhere. Just search Trek.fm and you'll find us there or search the name of the show you'd like to listen to. And if you go to the show pages for any show on our website, we also have buttons there that'll send you straight to all these sources. If iTunes is your thing, be sure to visit our artist page where you'll find all of our content. We have a lot of past content that we're bubbling up to the surface by putting them in special rows and groups by theme. And it's a great way to find past interviews, episode discussions, character analyses, all the great content that we have here, because we have almost a thousand episodes here. Can you believe that, Shar? That is unreal. You, you've you been on the network almost since the beginning. So you were around when we had a hundred episodes on the network. And here we are almost a thousand. Less than. Yeah, less than. Yeah, that is a lot of talking. It's a, it is a lot of talking. It's really hard <laughs> to believe. Surprising to me that people still want to hear our voices after this long. But <laughs> right? we really appreciate you listening. We appreciate everyone listening to the show. Yes. Yes, please and don't stop because we said that. Exactly. And we're trying to make it as easy as possible for you to get your hands on the show. So go check that out as well. If you go to iTunes.com slash Trekafilm in your browser, it will take you directly to our artist section in your iTunes application. And while you're over there, if you enjoy the shows, leave us a star rating and a written review. We love to hear from you. And it does help other Star Trek fans find the shows as well. And if you want to sample everything we're doing, maybe you only listen to the Ready Room and you hear us talk about these other shows, but you haven't listened to them, subscribe to the Trek Film Complete Master Feed. That feed actually has every episode of every show that we do, one after the other. So you're getting at least two new things in that feed every single day. Some days you get three, some days you get four new items in that feed. It's a really great way to sample all the topics that we're talking about. Yes, we will convert you into an addict if you aren't already. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's also very convenient. I recently converted to the Master Feed myself, and now scrolling through my list of podcasts that I listen to every day is a lot shorter because yeah. a big chunk of them were Trek FM. Well, it's cool. You listen to one show, and then you're like, oh, look, now they're talking about this. 
I'm just going to yeah. press play on that. So there you go. There you go. All right. Well, if you'd like to send us feedback on today's show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to our website at trek.film slash contact. There's a form there. Just choose to send to a show and choose the ready room. And that will come to us by email. You can also find us on Twitter. Our username is trekfm. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash trekfm. We have a community on Google+. Just search G Plus Communities for trek.film and you'll find us there. You can send us a voicemail through the website. And we have forums at trek.film slash forums. So lots and lots of ways for you to get in touch with us and let us know what you think about the shows. We'd love to hear from you. And if there's a question about Star Trek that you would like us to discuss here on The Ready Room, we also have what's called Questions from the Fleet. If you go to trek.fm, on that form, you'll see Questions from the Fleet. Send us anything you want to ask about Star Trek, and we'll talk about it in the news segment here on The Ready Room and answer your questions there. We'd love to hear from you on that as well. Now, Char, when you're not, you know, trying to teach Hugh how to be more human and also get Hugh to explain those Voyager Borg to you, and just what was going on there, where can people <laughs> find you? Well, you can find me on our regular Voyager podcast on Trek FM called To the Journey. To the Journey! Woohoo! Yes. With my fantastic co-host, Tristan Riddell, we talk all things Voyager every Thursday. Let's take a look for that. You can find me in past episodes of The Ready Room, among other podcasts that have, uh, yeah, certainly compiled over the years. Like you said, almost a thousand now. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> but you can also hit me up on the Twitter. I am uh, oh, the profanity on the Twitter. And if you ask really nicely, I might even do a barrel roll for you. Very good. So yeah, go check out Shar and Tristan on To The Journey. And if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much anywhere in social media under that same username. I use that everywhere. Twitter is my favorite social media platform though. So hit me up there. Send me a message. I'd love to chat. I, I will reply to you if you talk to me. So just say hello and let's talk about Star Trek over there. Elsewhere on the network, you can find me on a lot of shows. Matthew Rushing and I do Literary Treks together, where we talk Star Trek books and comics and we interview authors. We also do The Orb together, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. I do Warp 5 with different guests every week, and that's about Enterprise. Continuing Mission is a show where I interview the people who create fan films. So, you know, I've had the guys from Phase 2 on, Star Trek Continues, Renegades, Axanar... So many different shows, so you can learn all about the extended Star Trek universe. also have another interview show called Matterstream, which is about the world inspired by Star Trek. I've started up Hyper Channel again, where I spend about 15 minutes with you every day, and I just talk about some stories from the world of Star Trek, new stories, and what I think about them. And of course, I'm here on the Ready Room every single week. So if you're not sick of my voice by now, you will be soon, <laughs> but I do hope you'll listen because I just love sharing <laughs> the world of Star Trek with you all, and I really appreciate you all listening to all these shows. You know, Chris, I think it would be easier and faster if you just listed the shows you aren't on. That's right. I'm not on Standard Orbit, Earl Grey, or To the Journey, or Milan. There you Treks, go. <laughs> or Commentary Trek Star. See, see, Char, it's actually, I'm on less than half the shows on the network. Uh, yeah. Well, hey, there you go. <laughs> Well, before we let you go, we'd like to remind you one more time about our sponsors for today's show. First, there's TrekFan. Go to fm.trekfan.org 
and check out this very unique Star Trek fan club and take advantage of this book offer where they're going to send you books and you can share them with others. And there's so much more for you to do there at Trek Fan as well. If you love Star Trek and you love being challenged, it's the place you need to go. So check it out again, fm.trekfan.org. Be sure to include the FM at the beginning of the URL so that they know that you did hear about it here on Trek FM and on the Ready Room. You're going to love Trek Fan. It's a, it's a great concept, and we really thank them for supporting the show and the network. We'd also like to remind you about audible.com, and you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. Go pick up Jerry Taylor's Mosaic, which we told you about during news today. If you decide not to stick with Audible at the end of that trial, nothing to lose. You get to walk away with that book in hand. That's yours. But I know you're going to love Audible. And just by trying them out, you're going to really help us keep the ready room coming to you every single week. That's audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. Sign up today and let us know what you think about it as well. I know you're going to love it. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. All right, Char, well, I have to go. I'm going to wander back down and see if Guinan needs someone to fence against because I really do think that she's in the duty rotation for today. Fencing officers on shore leave. She's got to stand down there, and if no one wants to fence, she's going to get pretty bored, especially since she doesn't have her candles on hand. Hmm. Yeah, and you don't want Guinan to be lonely. No. No. Well, then she'll get all I philosophical on you. Indeed, she will. And, well, we can't have that, can we? I think it's time we stick a homing signal in it, because the ready room is done. <laughs>